uh, afternoon. Uh, thank you guys for coming. It is not Halloween. It is Reformation Day. Let's get it right. Uh, and uh, it is the, wow, applause, 504th anniversary of the, of the Reformation. And um, I, I, at the very beginning, let's just obviously make this clear. We're obviously in no way uh, going to worship the Reformers. That would be a mistake. They are not flawless men. They, they, have, they have their flaws for all to see. But we are extremely thankful to God for the recovery of the gospel that took place in such a public way uh, in the year, well, starting in 1517. And um, so 504 doesn't sound very special, does it? It's, 2017 was, the, you know, that's 500. That was pretty good. But today, this year is still a 500th anniversary because it's the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms, where, where he said, here I stand, I can do no other. That was in May of this past year, so we missed it by a few months. But we are still celebrating a 500th, really one of the most significant turning points uh, in, in the last 500 years of human history is, is that uh, stand before the Diet of Worms. So uh, Papa Fred. Uh, who has been greatly impacted along with all of us with the Reformation and with his childhood buddy, Martin Luther, one of his great friends from preschool. Uh, he knew him when he was still just a, a humble Augustinian monk at the time. Uh, Papa, would you pray for us as we, uh, as we begin today? Testing, there we go. Heavenly Father, uh, I am... Uh, of all people, feel inadequate today to uh, to even uh, uh, approach this subject, which is a vast one. And, and and Martin Luther is certainly a player, but there were so many so many others that preceded him and succeeded him in, in this massive effort to recover the gospel. In fact, I, I think it's it's significant that since the first century church that this was really a, um, uh, a watermark year, uh, 1517 or years preceding and succeeding at, as far as the church is concerned. And, and out of the Reformation emerged uh, what we know as, as the modern church. And we're still reforming today. Uh, someone uh, in that time uh, coined the phrase uh, post Tenebras lux, out of darkness, light. And so as we exposit your word as well as history to examine the Reformation, we pray that your spirit would embolden us to stand like Luther uh, against uh, opponents of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And Papa, I'm going to ask you just in a second to tell us a little bit about Luther earlier on in his life. Um, before, we, before we get to that, I mentioned a couple, maybe a week or two ago, that uh, the year 1517 was when the 95 Theses were nailed to the door of the Wittenberg uh, church there. And uh, the year before that, do you remember 1516? Uh, we talked about what important thing hit the printing press for the first time in human history, the Greek New Testament. That was the first time the Greek New Testament had ever been printed and published, 1516, by a Catholic scholar, Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, who uh, ended up becoming one of Luther's opponents during the Reformation. He had no… <laughs> so, so just picture, Catholic scholar prints the Greek New Testament thinking it would help Catholicism. But the backfiring that happens is, is when people can actually read the Greek New Testament for the first time in the original language, they realize that the gospel had been misrepresented to them for the last four or five hundred years especially. And so that's what led to the, to the turning of the Reformation. It was not, I, I keep saying this, it wasn't Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli 
that caused the Reformation. It was the Greek New Testament hitting the printing press. That's what caused the, the, the Reformation. It was Luther getting his hands on that Greek New Testament. And as he read Romans, the conversion happened to him. And then soon to the whole, you know, to the watching world, they, they followed in his steps. So before we get to that moment in time, let's go back before 1517. Luther was originally from his father planning to be a what, Papa Fred? A lawyer. And so tell us what happened. Uh, he was born to... Um actually a peasant stock, but his father was industrious and a miner. And uh, after a while, built uh, some refineries and so earned a, a modest living for that, for that period of time. And his plan, was, Luther was, was his oldest son, Martin was his oldest son. And so he, his plan was for Luther to go to law school because there was no social security in those days. And so you're your children would take care of you as you as you aged. And Martin was pretty smart and, and intelligent and had done done well in school. And so that was that was the plan. Um, he um, uh, pursued a normal education. Um, and in 1502, at the age of 19, received his bachelor's degree and then a master's degree after that. And so on his way from, he's actually in law school, on his way home from school, um, he's caught in a thunderstorm. And this is um, in 1505. He was born in 1483. So um, 1505, he's home, he's coming home from school. Some say he was on a horse, some say he was walking. It really doesn't matter. But he was, it was a thunderstorm, it was in July, and a lightning bolt struck near him. And he was um, scared and he frightened as we, any of us would be. And he said, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. Now, St. Anne was the mother of Mary. Um, she was also the patron saint of minors. Of course, Luther's family were minors. So she would have been a, a regular uh, intercessor, intercessor for the mining families. Um, he feared for his soul and did not know how to find safety in the gospel. Those words are from Piper in his little book, uh, The Swan uh, uh, Series. And so he did the next best thing. He opted to go to a monastery. And in, in those days, um, uh, there's a term, sacerdotalism. And it really means the efficacy of the priest in administering the sacraments. So you found solace uh, not only in the sacraments, but in the holy or in the uh, with the sacraments themselves. One of which was holy orders. You went in, if you were a monk or a priest, you were almost assured of a one-way ticket to heaven. Luther struggled his whole life, or at least his early life, with his feelings of inadequacy, as we often do. Um, he wanted God. He wanted to know God. He just, he didn't know how to find him except through the church's system, so. And, and as, it, as the story goes, you know, he would, he would go to his confessor. It was Johann von, von Staupitz, Staupitz, a good friend of Fred's as well. And uh, he would go to Johann von Staupitz. He would confess his sins. And, you know, the story goes that he would not just be there for five minutes, like maybe an average monk, you know, the, the, the old saying, you know, what, what, how much trouble do you get in as a monk in a monastery? I think Sproul said, what do you covet? 
Brother Joseph's bread during dinner? Like, what, what are you getting into in the monastery? There's not a lot of options here for, for, for like outward sin. But Luther would go and he wouldn't be there for half an hour or an hour or an hour and a half. He'd be there for two hours, three hours, maybe sometimes four hours plus. He would be done and the confessor, Johann von Staupitz, was exhausted. He said, Luther, I think you're just trying to get out of work. This, this is laziness. You're going on and on and on. You just get back and get, get to work. Come when you have a real sin, is what he would say. And Luther's like, these are real sins. And Luther would be on his way back to his room Halfway back, he'd go, oh, I forgot one. And he's on his way back to the confessional booth. And so Luther, no matter how hard he tried to be righteous, found that he was haunted by the holiness and righteousness of God. And he said that when asked, it was not so much that he loved God, it was more that he began to hate the very idea of the righteousness of God, because he thought that the righteousness of God was going to condemn him forever to hell. And so he was battling back and forth, no matter what he did, no matter what he accomplished as a monk, it felt like it was nothing compared to the weight of his sin. And it was like the lawyer mind that he was starting to have trained was applying the law of God to his sinful heart. And the lawyer mind with the law of God, with his heart, was showing you have been tried in the scales and have been found wanting, right? You, you are far from what you're supposed to be or who you should be. And he, he finally gets his hands on, if you can turn to Romans chapter 1, he, he finally gets his hands on the Greek New Testament, and he's beginning to teach through Romans 1. And when he gets to this well-known uh, paragraph, you can sort of see how he misunderstood it at first, and then how he finally began to understand it rightly. Scott, can you read for us 1, 16 through 18? Sure. Romans 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You can see how Luther's reading this passage. And he sees in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Do you see how the righteousness of God is revealed? The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you see how you could misread this passage? Luther thought the revealing was basically one and the same. God's righteousness was revealing the standard of righteousness by which we fall short. And so along with God's righteousness, what? His wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness in us. And so Luther first thought the righteousness of God was simply the standard by which we fall short and deserve God's wrath. And so he said, I began to hate the term righteousness of God. It just made him feel condemned all day long. And it was the moment of his conversion was when he realized, no, the righteousness of God is the gift of Christ's righteousness covering us in our sin. And he said when he realized that amazing moment, that's when the gates of paradise opened up and he walked through as if he was truly born again at that point. Comments on that? You mentioned, you mentioned uh, Luther's lawyer mind. Um, I think later on when, when uh, von Staupitz um, asked him to teach Bible, I think, I think you guys are just blessed to be able to teach Bible. At, at any age to, to young minds. But uh, Staupitz knew that Luther's out or Luther's escape was the word. Staupitz was a, a mystic. Uh, he actually understood justification by faith. And he knew that Luther's answer would be in the word rather than confession. So he directed him to study, uh, to teach Psalms. It was really in Psalms that Luther's eyes were really open because mm -hmm. he he understood that the give and take of David and, and the Lord, 
um, um, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, and also Genesis as well. Um, but he, in, in, um, in Galatians, we, Galatians 2, 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one could be justified. See, when Luther even read that, he, he, was, he was conflicted because the church taught something else. The church taught a works salvation, a works righteousness. So he, he, was, he struggled with that dichotomy there. Yeah, I mean, what I was thinking of, well, I'll just give a quick plug for this. Uh, R.C. Sproul did these 10 lectures on it called Luther and the Reformation. And at least this week they were free online. They're like 22 to 25 minutes, but it's fantastic. Sproul, it's later in his life, he's at his church. He has such a grasp on the history and doesn't even seem to have much notes. And he's just quoting all these different people involved. It's just incredible. But at point, multiple points, a couple of different points, I was moved by uh, Sproul talking about Luther. And just what you guys have said, I think you have to understand Luther's background and like his law mind, taking it to the law of God and feeling sort of the weight of his sin, feeling like he can't be made right with God, like he's never going to be, be in, in right standing on his righteousness alone. But to go down into the hole with Luther, I think he, he's really down deep in this hole. And then when he comes out, like I just, it was just moving to go down in this hole with Luther because he said like no one since the Apostle Paul had studied the law of God like Luther did. He knew he was a sinner. He said you didn't have to convince him he was a sinner, but he's longing to basically to get free from it. Then studying Romans 1 and like to see that there's a righteousness outside of himself that Jesus has, has provided for his people simply by faith in him. And like it was, it's just moving to, you kind of celebrate it with Luther when he sees the wonder of the gospel for the first time. He, the gates of paradise swing open. He walks and it's by faith alone that I'm made right with God. There's a righteousness outside of myself. And then Sproul said, in the Q&A, he said, uh, the gospel set Luther on fire. And he said, it didn't matter that you could put the whole world against him. Popes, councils, it didn't matter because the gospel is such good news. It has set his soul on fire. He is not going to relinquish. He will be killed for this gospel because it's such good news. He's going to translate the Bible to get this gospel out of the common man. So I, so I just was thinking, is, does the gospel set us on fire? I mean, you see Luther being set on fire, but it doesn't really, I mean, we're so used to the gospel. Sproul said this other point. He said, justification by faith is not hard to understand. He said, a child can understand it, but it's hard to get into our bloodstream. It's hard to like live and we, we fall into the good day, bad day. I mean, just, we want to be set on fire by the gospel, remember the wonder of it and, and live in light of it. Get the justification by faith into our bloodstream. And Luther's a great person to study to just jolt you back up to the, to the wonder of the righteousness of Christ provided by faith for us. Oh, that's good. We're not, you know, we're, we're not speaking of this as if we're not part of this because all of us have struggled with, with at times with our faith, with, with our uh, unworthiness before God. And really that was that, as you mentioned, the crux of Luther's problem. He, there was a term he, he coined called onfectum. It was a, uh, I'll define it. Um, it, 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 it's not an English uh, equivalent, but it's, it's like blitzkrieg, lightning warfare. It, it's a trial or test or an assault by the devil to destroy man. It is, it is all the doubt, turmoil, pang, tremor, panic, despair, desolation, and desperation which invade the spirit of man. And Luther felt that in his, in his heart. And I think that drove him. It drove him first to the church. And when he didn't find the answer, then it drove him to the word. And that was his solace and escape. And, and, and he just was a radically different person. The scales fell from his eyes and he was willing to stand up before the might of the church and 
um, secular powers to defend. Let's jump off like right where you are, Fred. So just reminding, so 1517 is when the 95 Theses go on the door. At the time, uh, it's debatable, and, and you, Fred would probably know this for sure, but it's debatable where Luther was spiritually even at the time of the 95 Theses because really if you read through the actual 95 Theses, I disagree with a lot of them because he's still writing from a Catholic perspective at the time of that. He, he's, he's objecting to the indulgences system and those kinds of things. He's not, I don't know that he's fully grasped the gospel at that moment, but very soon afterwards, he becomes a genuine believer fully. And then by the year 1521, so now 500 years ago in May, Luther is, is brought before the Diet of Worms. You have the Pope, you have all the, all the leaders of the known world. And you know we live in a time of individualism. We're used to one person standing up against a corporation or against a business. In the 1500s, nobody by themselves stood up against anybody. That would be considered arrogance beyond language. And so to have one guy defy the Pope and everyone in power was considered unbelievable hubris and pride unless he was right. And so when, when they bring him before the Diet of Worms, they have all of Luther's books stacked out there, and they say, you know, Luther, are these your books? He says, well, yes, they are. He says, okay, will you renounce the errors contained in these books? Will you, will you renounce them? And Luther stood up and he said, can I have one day to think about it? Which is, <laughs> I love that part of the story. So Luther says, you know, because if he is wrong, if he says, no, I will not renounce my books, the Pope will excommunicate him from the Catholic Church. And listen, in Catholic theology, if the Pope removes you from the church, you are guaranteed to go to hell no matter what. If, you, if the Pope removes you, you will go to hell. So if he's wrong, he doesn't just risk death physically, he risks eternal damnation if he's wrong. But if he's right, it's just the opposite, right? So he goes that night and he has a sleepless night and he prays. He actually writes down the prayer he has that night. And uh, it's a powerful prayer to, to read, which you can read online or for free if you look it up. And Luther basically is fighting with the devil and all these thoughts. And he comes out of that night saying, Lord, the cause is not mine. It is yours. It is your cause. Please strengthen me. The next day he comes back, all the popes and you know, bishops and whatnot are all there. And they say, okay, Martin, you've had 24 hours to think it over. Do you renounce the heresy in your books? And, and do you have it written down, Papa Fred, the, his, his Here I Stand speech? I do. Let's hear it. Luther replied, now this is not the act that he earlier debated, but the act, the inquisitor at, at, at Worms. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. <laughs> they knew him. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and, and errors which they contain? Luther replied, since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, Lord, help me. And at that moment, the room erupts Erupt. into chaos. Old Martin Luther, they're going to grab him to take him away. He will be put to death. He will be put to death for this crime. And, and as they're going to take him away to kill him, he is kidnapped by a friend of his. Uh, what was the friend's name? Oh, Frederick of Wise, who was the, the, his protector. The, um, just real quickly, uh, Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, had electors. Frederick the Wise of Saxony, Luther's prince, was one of those electors. In fact, I did not know this until this week, but he was favored by the Pope for the job of the Holy Roman Emperor. Hmm. Uh, 
he refused it. He won on the first ballot, refused it, and Charles V got it. So Frederick was very um, influential over Luther, very protective of Luther, and so he spearheaded this kidnapping. And where did he take him? He took him to the castle. He took the castle, the, the um, I don't think. The Wittenberg Castle? Wartburg or something? Or Wartburg Castle. Castle. And and when when Luther is taken, he's kidnapped away from his death. He's hidden upstairs in this castle where he went under a pseudonym. He went under a fake name. Sir George. Sir George while he was there. (laughs) And he grew a beard and he would go down to the the, the villages at night. and, (laughs) And it was actually from that experience that he listened to, see, because he spoke Latin, German, Greek, all the Hebrew fluently. He listened to how the common folk would talk, and he used that as the impetus to translate the Bible, the New Testament, mm. from Erasmus's mm-hmm. 15, 16 copy. So while, 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 he while, was he's, the while he's up there in that castle hiding away, he translates the Bible into Germany, uh, into German, and then it's, it's published in Germany, and it's distributed widely, and it, that's changes, that changes the, the entire radically. country. Radically. Because now they have the Bible accurately translated. It's not the Latin version that the, that the Catholic is, Church fact, I don't used. read German uh, anymore, but I understand that it's one of the most beautiful trans, both his Old and New Testament. He did the New first and then later did the complete Bible. That's one of the most beautiful expressions in the German language. And so the people could read the Bible. That's right. So let's talk here uh, quickly. We'll focus on more than the others, but the five solas of the Reformation in the time that we have remaining here, the five solas of the Reformation, uh, you have uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, learned about from the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone, right? The five solas of the Reformation. And let, let's start with, I think at, at the center would be uh, faith alone, right? That, that would be a cent- central turning point for the Reformation. Uh, Scott, why don't you say something about the justification? Yeah, which ties back in again to, to what I said at the beginning, really with Luther again, what he discovers in, in Romans chapter one, that he sees there's a righteousness available to any who put their faith in Jesus. So it's by faith, that's the... Uh, the means, I guess, that we're united to Christ is uh, saving faith and faith alone. It's not plus works at all. Uh, I mean, it's like uh, the Catholic system would say uh, we have to have works necessary to justify us, but that's not at all what the Reformation would say. That nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross. I claim it's simple faith and trust, and the faith is a gift of God as well, but it's simple faith, no works at all. That's how we're justified, and that's the good news. It's like if it was up to us at all, I think Tony Reinke in one of his books said, if, you know, if it's 1% up to us and 99% to Jesus, we'd be 100% helpless. Like, it, we, we, it's such, that's why it's such good news. It's simply by faith and trust in Jesus. That's how we're made, made right, is faith alone. Um, you, you have the 95 Theses in 1517. He's at Worms in 1521, asked to defend his works. In 1520, he wrote three works. Uh, I do want to comp, uh, comment on the justification. His first work was the Christian nobility of the German nation, where he dismantles the institution of the church. Uh, Then the Babylonian captivity of the church, which he dismantles um, sacramental system. And then the third and most important one, I think, uh, for the Reformation was, I've got to read this, if if you indulge me. Um, The the freedom of a Christian, having having made his attacks, this was his positive explanation of the gospel. And he dedicated it to the Pope since for all his attacks on Rome and the popes, he wanted to save the man himself. At the heart of it is a story of a king who marries a prostitute, 
Luther's allegory for the marriage of King Jesus to the wicked sinner. When they marry, the prostitute becomes by status a queen. It is not that she made her behavior queenly and so won the right to the king's hand. She was and is a wicked harlot through and through. However, when the king made, her, made his marriage vow, her status changed. Thus, she is simultaneously a prostitute at heart and a queen by status. In just the same way, Luther saw that the sinner on accepting Christ's promise in the gospel is simultaneously a sinner at heart and righteous by status. Summa ustus et peccator. What has happened is the joyful exchange in which all that she has, her sin, she gives to him, and all that he has, his righteousness, blessedness, glory, and life, he gives to her. Thus, she can confidently display her sins in the face of death and hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. This was Luther's understanding of justification by faith alone. And it is that security, he argued, and that harlot actually then starts to become queenly at heart. Wow, mm. that's great. I, I had read that before, but I just did. It was in this... And by the way, if, you, if, you're, if you're interested in a short book on the Reformation, Michael Reeves' book, The Unquenchable Flame, is a tremendous introduction. Dynamite. Yeah, a tremendous Michael, Anything Michael Reeves writes is worth buying, but, but that's a great introduction to the Reformation. Look at Romans chapter 4. Uh, we'll look at the end of 3 and the beginning of 4 for some crucial verses on this subject. And I, we, uh, most of us understand these verses uh, to some degree. Let's look at verse, um, verse 28 of Romans 3. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith, the Jew, and the uncircumcised through faith, the Gentile. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law which I think he means here two things. One is the law was always pointing to this, but secondly, we actually begin to obey God as a result of, like you said, after, as a result of this change. Look at chapter 4, and he contrasts the two different ways of salvation, the way of the Pharisee and the way of a believer. Verse 4 is the way of a Pharisee, 4.4 4 of Romans. Now, to the one who works, think of Luther as a monk working very hard, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's someone trying to earn eternal life. Verse 5 is the opposite. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's the harlot, right? His faith is counted as righteousness. Just that's as, imputation. That's imputation. It, 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 yeah, it, it, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited or counted as righteousness. Let's move to grace alone, which is, um, we don't have to say as much about this, but gra grace alone goes right with this. Scott, what, what, what does grace alone mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, we all know salvation is by grace alone. I mean, the illustration that you've used and many people have used, you have two siblings who grow up in the same home, same parents, same church, and one becomes a Christian, the other does not. At the end of the day, how do you explain the difference in the, in the two? I mean, and if any Christian, any genuine Christian, I think if you push them on this, none of them are going to say, I made a better choice. Nobody is. Uh, even Arminians, they're not going to say this deep down. 
But the, who made, what made the difference? God made the difference. And I was thinking about Sam, his conversion. I mean, just his baptism last, last Sunday. Uh, I mean, you think a year ago, he was an atheist. An atheist. And then you think about... Uh, he, God places him with Josh Cronick, this, this guy who's gifted in evangelism, placed place with Sam. I mean, what, what a choice. That's God's grace in his life. Gives him a Bible. He's, he's going to read this Bible. Why does he start reading the Bible? God is beginning to work on him. He, he's reading through the Bible, and he reads through the Gospel of Luke. What happens? God opens his eyes to the beauty of Jesus, and he weeps when he sees the glory of Jesus for the first time. How can you explain that? It is God's grace. And Sam, it's grace alone. Sam, Sam would say that. I mean, that's all of our story. It is nothing, and it's nothing that we did. We were running a hellbound race, and God came after us. He pursued us. He grabbed us. We know it is all of grace. So at the end of the day, I think every, all these solos at the end will point to soli deo gloria. It's to the glory of God alone. We know we cannot boast. It is all God. It should produce praise and worship in us. And just to keep the story, I mean, just, you can just keep going, amplifying this out. But the fact that Sam and Carrie are married, the fact that Carrie is where she is spiritually, which she said in her testimony, then when she sees Sam's transformation, suddenly she is sort of going, wait a second, let me rethink some of this. And before long, the Spirit is doing the same thing to her. Her eyes are open. She, she is overwhelmed by the, the love of Christ. So none of this is accidental or coincidental. Uh, it may look like a coincidence to us, like, oh, you happen to be with this particular guy in the gym. Like, that was ra- it randomly assigned. And, and we can use that language as Christians, we know what we really mean, though. Providentially, providentially, he was placed there with Josh. Providentially, Josh brought the Bible to Sam. Sam reads the Bible, converted. Carrie is moved by that and eventually converted as well, studying the Bible. That, that is all grace, beginning, middle, end. It's all God who gets the credit for, for I that. think of Jerry in Romans 8, 28, too, um, and, and Luther. There were two, two individuals, predominantly in his life. Von Staupitz, clearly, his mentor and confessor, uh, von Stalpitz recognized his need, uh, directed him to the word, and then his elector, Frederick the Wise. Now, Frederick wasn't any saint. He had the largest depository of relics in the kingdom. <laughs> he had 19,000 relics wow. uh, in his castle church. And you could, there were nine aisles, and going down and, and visiting these relics could earn you some time out of, out of purgatory. Mm. Nonetheless, he defended Luther throughout his life, and, and he's one of the reasons God's providence that Luther is still was alive. It's interesting you mentioned the relics, because remember, the relics are sort of like the spiritual lucky charms. You know, you, you would go to these things, and you would think that they had some sort of merit to them. Luther, I believe his last sermon before his death, he was actually grieving the fact that Christians were starting to turn back to the relics. They, we, we claim to have a, a bit of clothing from Joseph's trousers or something, you know, somewhere, and we have a bit of the cross, this piece of cross over here. And if you go to it, and you pray near it or around it, you get extra blessing from God. And it was this, it was this very superstitious view of spiritual things. I think Sproul said... <laughs> You know, because all these claims were also made up too, right? We didn't really have a piece of Joseph's no. clothing. How would that have survived 2,000 years? We don't really have splinters from the cross, but Sproul made this joke. He said, if you took all the pieces of the wood of the cross from all the different chapels and cathedrals across the world, the cross would be about 75 feet tall and about 45 feet wide because everyone claims this random piece of wood is part of the cross. Look, it has some of Jesus' blood on it. If you touch it, oh my goodness, if you pray near it. And it was all nonsense. It was all distraction from the real thing. And he grieved that at the end of his life saying, we're turning back to vain and lifeless things, like Paul in Galatians, the elemental spirits of the world, when we have the living Christ here in His Word that we can meet with and commune with by His Spirit, we're turning back to these trinkets and these, these lies and deceptions, even if they were pieces of the cross. You make that would really, do nothing to help you spiritually. You make a really good point because we're never very far away from apostasy, mm. I think. I mean, you can have a, a Luther or a Calvin uh, or any 
uh, reformer, and then we drift. Mm -hmm. You give a couple generations, and Hebrews 2, don't drift. And, and we have a tendency to do that because we want to, we're driven by the flesh. But on the subject of grace, uh, Dr. Grace was Augustine. So Augustine's teaching uh, sort of elevated grace to a prominent position. Unfortunately, he bought into the uh, sacramentalism in the church and taught that this grace was infused with mm -hmm. baptism. But uh, so he was, but he was known as Dr. Grace. And so he, 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 that was sort of foundational for the reformers. Moving to Christ alone. Scott? Yeah, let's see if I can find Solus Christus. Yeah, I mean, it's simply this, I would say, uh, it's 2 Timothy, I guess, too, that says this, that there's no other mediator between God and sinful humanity than Christ. He alone, based on his work on the cross, grants access uh, to the Father. Uh, I was thinking about the passage in, in Revelation. Let me just read this passage, and I'll apply it to Christ alone for a second. Uh, Revelation 5, 3 to 5, I'll just read these are famous verses. Uh, it says this, Revelation 5, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I was thinking that, apply that to Christ alone. And think about, uh, think about this, I'm making up my own verses here on this. Like say, no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was found to redeem sinful humans and a holy God. There's no one to be found. And I began to weep when I saw there's no mediator between God and man. And then an elder comes and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He has come. He has been born of a virgin. He's lived the perfect life. He's died, buried, raised, and ascended. And he is the mediator between God God and man, weep no more. So that's Christ alone. He and he alone can save and he has saved. And uh, I think that the application would be, do we love Jesus? I mean, do we have a love, genuine love, affection for the one mediator who's come, died and uh, saved us? See, that's really significant because in the, Reforma at the, in the Middle Ages, they taught you had a host of mediators between God and man. These various saints, the treasury of merit, the, the Pope, uh, the, the priest, I mean, that was one of the, the major issues in, with Luther is that he dismantled the whole sacramental system except for baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, because he saw them as idolatrous. And, and so, um, uh, you know, it was, uh, you didn't need a mediator outside Jesus. So. And it's interesting that uh, from the Catholic perspective, there was a move in the 90s called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, ECT, and this was extremely controversial as it deserved to be, and uh, there was a dividing line that sort of appeared on the scene. Uh, you know, in recent days with some social justice issues, we've seen dividing lines appear. This was a dividing line in the 90s over issues of Catholic and Protestant theology, and it you'd be surprised some of the names that actually signed this document, sadly. People like J.I. Packer, who we love, and uh, Chuck Colson, no, Chuck Swindoll, or Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson signed it. And um, there was a meeting in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, at, at D. James Kennedy's church at the time. And so there was this meeting behind closed doors that lasted for, I don't know, four hours or six hours, this massive meeting. It was all the big names. So it was John MacArthur and Sproul and Packer and, and Chuck Colson. They're all, they're all in dis I mean, disagreement. There's a, there's a division in the room over whether or not Catholics and Protestants today agree on the gospel. And the, the, the document tried to sound like we said the same things. This is why we got to be so careful with language. The document said that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And both sides said, I can sign that. The, what's the problem? What's, what word is missing? Alone. 
right? We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Every Catholic would agree with that, and every Protestant agrees with that. But as soon as you add alone, alone. saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, as soon as you add the solas, then you no longer have Catholicism, right? And so they signed it having left out the critical word alone. Justification is by faith, not by the sacramental system. And so as soon as you put that word in, they would not be able to sign it. So the document was, again, this is studied ambiguity, using language ambiguously by intention so that people who don't agree can act like they agree for the sake of false unity, which is not okay. And so there was one, uh, I wish this meeting was on tape, but that would not be appropriate if they had filmed it. But I would, I, would pay, I would pay in the hundreds of dollars, no joke, to watch this thing. But there was a moment that was only reported later by others where Sproul was so intense, he climbed up on this giant wooden table. Sproul got hands and knees on the table and was going, if we lose the faith alone, we lose the gospel. And you know, Packer is probably going, what are you doing, R.C.? But R.C. climbed knees and hands onto the table to make the point. He was kind of having a Luther moment right there. Uh, he was probably to pull hand, nails and a hammer out in just a second and nail something to the wall. But that was a, an incredible moment there in, in the 90s. And you can still watch on YouTube I don't remember the title, but D. James Kennedy, R.C. Sproul, and MacArthur, you can still watch it. It's, it's like over an hour long. They did a TV show with John Ankerberg about this, and uh, they were in that huge sanctuary talking about this, and MacArthur, Sproul, and Kennedy all tell the story, and they argue for it from Scripture. And man, Sproul's intensity in that, in that hour-long YouTube video with terrible quality, but it's like 240p, if you know what I'm talking about, like low grain, it's like three pixels are moving around. But it, it is fantastic. Sproul does a, and they all do a great job, but Sproul's intensity and his, his logical precision is on such display in that video. And you get a sense that, man, not only is he right, but I'm so glad we had RC for the years that we, that we did. Scott mentioned the 10 segments on the Reformation by Sproul. If you can look at that, they're, 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 this, they're awesome. That's the only way I can describe it. Sproul is, is still, was still uh, reforming the church or proposing reforming the church until the day he went home to be with Jesus. So. And I, I, just to move quickly to Scripture alone here in our moments remaining, uh, it, Scripture alone, uh, I, I won't be speci too specific here. I, I've known a number of Catholics in my life that I've talked to about the gospel, uh, had in-depth, long conversations on numerous occasions with numerous different uh, Catholics uh, who, who I know, who, I'm, who I would consider, you know, friends, and, and we've talked through these things, and over and over in my experience, especially the last maybe six years, over and over in these conversations, it comes back to the same thing. We disagree on justification, we disagree on all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, the ground level that we disagree about is authority. At the end of the day, we have different authorities. And you say, but no, we all believe in the Bible. The, I've t I told you this the other week, Catholicism unambiguously and unembarrassed teaches that the Bible is God's Word and that certain sacred traditions chosen by the Pope and his council, the, called the magisterium, the Pope and his bishops, they've chosen certain traditions by church fathers that they consider to be equal in authority as Scripture and equally God's Word as Scripture. That's why they believe things like the eternal virginity of Mary. That's why they believe in the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven upon death, or maybe she didn't even die, depending on who you read or look at on that. Many and many of these teachings that you get are not actually from the Bible. The fact that Mary's mother was named Saint Anne, that's not in the Bible, that's a Catholic tradition. We have no idea what her name was, and on and on. The, the, the Immaculate Conception which is not about the virgin birth. It's about how Mary was immaculately conceived without sin in her mother's womb and that Mary never sinned. 
How about that? This is nowhere taught in the Bible. Luke chapter 1, Mary says, my spirit rejoices in the Lord. My spirit magnifies God, my Savior. Who needs a Savior? Mary does. Why? Because she's a sinner like you and I are. That's why she needs a Savior. And the Catholic Church says, no, the, the Lord saved her from sin by never letting her sin, by the Immaculate Conception. Where is that in the text? It's nowhere in the text. You have to bring it in from church tradition. So with all these conversations with Catholic friends of mine, at the end of the day, I'm pointing at this book and they have to bring up sacred tradition. And at the end of the day, they hold it equal to verses in the Bible. And at the end, that's why I just said, okay, we, we've got to have a discussion about Scripture alone is the final court of appeal. The Supreme Court is this book, not anything else. Not what I think, not what you think, not what a council says, not what a pope says, not what Martin Luther says. And he would be the first to say it. What this book says is the alone final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And if you don't believe that, you're going to go astray. If you think the Book of Mormon is equally, if not more inspired than the Bible, then you will go astray. If you think the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower magazine printed by the hundreds of millions is equally as authoritative as the Scripture, you will go astray. If you put anything in the driver's seat next to the Bible you will go astray. You will be led into error. It could be your dreams, your imagination, your thoughts, your feelings. It could be what culture is saying. It could be what peer-reviewed journal articles are saying. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, anything you put as judge of Scripture or equal as Scripture or infallible interpreter of Scripture, that thing will become your Scripture. That will become your word from God. And at the end of the day, that will drive you away from Scripture. So in, in these discussions I've had, it's always me pointing at verses and them saying, but what about this tradition? And I'm saying... <laughs> This is the authority. This, this is where the, at the, the ground floor of the Reformation is the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, God's glory, of course, is just as central, but Scripture is the ground floor, and then you build on that. Justification is by faith alone, not by the sacramental system, and, and on it goes from there. Yeah, I think it just means that we want to come humbly to the Word of God. Like, this yes. is our final authority. We don't come down in this prideful position. No, we want to come under the Word. And if the Word confronts our life, we must submit to the Word. And a story about uh, Sproul and MacArthur that uh, I love the story where MacArthur and Sproul differed on secondary issues. They even debated baptism. But Sproul said this about MacArthur. He said, if I could prove to John MacArthur that infant baptism was in the Bible, he would believe it in a second. He said, I just love that. That's how we should be. If the Bible teaches it, we must submit to the Word. We come humbly to the Word, under the Word. So, yeah. And you just tell a story, I won't name the name. Jerry and I were in class on, was it Friday, Jerry? Friday. Friday afternoon, Jerry and I were, we, we had a former student ask if she could come ask a question about a very difficult topic in the Bible. I'll say what it was. It was predestination, okay? She wanted, she, she had, she had, she's in college now, and she's trying to figure out predestination. She's never really heard much about it. She's heard it here and there. She knew we had taught on it, but she didn't quite know what we said exactly, which is, you know, that's, no, that's pretty normal with, with our teaching experience. What did you say about that? So she, she wanted to come back and meet with Jerry and I at, on, on Friday around 2 o'clock, and we met with her for two almost two hours. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. But she's sitting there asking these questions, and it, what was amazing about this, this exchange was the humility and teachability the Lord had given her before the text of Scripture. We were walking through very, verses when you hear them for the first time, we've all been there, right? On that topic, you're like, what did the Bible say? What? And so she was looking at these very challenging texts, like Romans 9, Ephesians 1 and 2, John chapter 10, and on and on. And, and we were, I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen in my life someone receive so humbly what the text was actually saying on a difficult issue as she did in that, in that meeting on Friday. It was, it was amazing. And so what you're, that's what we should pray for. The Lord says in Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look with favor. He who is humble, contrite at heart, and what's the last part? 
trembles. trembles at my word. And we saw on Friday a, a young woman who was trembling at God's word. She was willing to believe whatever it said, believing even if it's hard, it's good and true. And it was so refreshing to see that. And we should all pray for that for ourselves as we stand before Scripture. And we've got to close. But um, God's glory alone, Papa Fred, in 30 seconds, can you tell us what that is? <laughs> 30 seconds. Okay, I think, I go back to, to Moses. I, I'll go back to the burning bush. I mean, that's, I guess that's one of the big times where God really revealed uh, I am. And when I think of I am, that's when the hair stands up on the back of my neck. And to him be the glory. And, and he spoke to Moses, but actually, he actually spoke to Luther. They had a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Once, once the scales fell from his eyes and he came to Christ, he never let him go. And they, and they, they sparred, they debated and they, Luther prayed. He prayed all the time. He was passionate about this book and it's God's book. And so this is to him be the glory. Did you pray for us? Father, thank you for this opportunity to talk about a, a subject that uh, is dear and near and dear to my heart. And, and uh, anyone who is captured by the word of God and that we would be like Luther, whether it's in family relationships, uh, schools, uh, uh, political institutions, wherever, to be willing to stand up for the word of God and, if necessary, um, perish uh, because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.